Well, good morning. That was a very cool intro video. Whoever made that, well done. Well done. Good morning, Bridge Church. Thank you so much for having me. So excited to be here. Nate, thank you for that kind intro and great haircut. Looking really good. Everyone, make sure you compliment Nate on his great haircut. Um, yes, yeah, so good to be here, and thank you already for your just kind and generous welcome to my wife and I this morning. We felt very blessed to be here already today, so thank you for that beautiful new building. It's, it's uh, such a gift that you guys get to be here, and I'm so excited to see what God is going to do in and through the ministries and the people in this place. So excited for you, and may he just richly bless you as a church as you continue forward in this new season. As Nate said, a little brief kind of description of myself, a little bio so you can know me better. Uh, My name is Brad. I'm a pastor in Coquitlam. Uh, I'm a student at Regent College. My wife Kate and I have been married for five years, and we have a beautiful baby girl named Wesley who turns one this coming Saturday, which is hard to believe, to be perfectly honest. Hard to believe. Now, unfortunately for all of you, Wesley's with grandma today, so she's not here Um, Otherwise, you would be deeply blessed with her. As our church back home can attest, she would have sang louder than anybody in this room uh, this morning. She loves to sing with the worship songs. But anyway, I'm thrilled to be here and really excited to share God's word with you this morning. Also about me, uh, I've never worked in the business world. I obviously, I'm a pastor before that, you know, I did little, you know, kind of teenage jobs here and there and then did some things to get through college and then I started pastoring. So I've never worked in the business world, but I have watched a lot of television. So I think I know pretty much everything there is to know about how the inner dynamics of the business world work. I think that's pretty fair to say. And one thing I've learned from watching TV shows is that what often happens in workplace dynamics in the business world is, you know, there's this culture that's starting to fester and build. Things are starting to happen amongst the coworkers. Maybe it's like a gossip culture or it's a laziness culture, whatever it is. Some kind of culture starting to fester and develop. And things are attempted to slow that down. And eventually the boss decides they need to make an example out of someone. Someone needs to be made an example of. So the bosses decide they have to draw the line somewhere and make the consequences real. Enough's enough. We need to show them what happens when you do this. And so this usually means it's been a slow deterioration and a potential problems arising. And maybe they've given warnings and then stern warnings and then threats and then stern threats and eventually enough's enough. Time for an example. I was hiking around Bunsen Lake a while back, and I walked by what must have been a Riverside Secondary School PE class, and I know this because at the front of the group was my grade 11 math teacher. And seeing her brought back this whole flood of memories for me and reminded me of all the times when I had been made an example of. Now you see, in high school I had this tendency, and I know that you all don't know me very well, so this may come as a surprise to you, but I had a tendency to be the student in class who was very distracting to others, very distracting to those around me. I would talk way too much in class, I'd be way too chatty with my friends, and I'd distract everyone in my circle. And this would often lead to my group in class receiving those warnings. And then, as we would inevitably continue in our ways, the stern warnings, and then the threats, and then the stern threats. 
before ultimately getting to the point where the threats just weren't enough. They weren't doing it. And someone had to be made an example of. And for whatever reason that remains a great mystery to me today, it seemed to usually be me. And so depending on the severity of that particular teacher or what, you know, what they ate for breakfast that day or my attitude, which was probably usually the problem, this could be either a trip to the principal for a good stern talking to or it could just be what happened to me on many occasions, one of which was with the teacher that I saw on the Bunsen Lake Trail a while back, which was they would physically move my desk over to up against the teacher's desk all by myself, just like chilling with them. And I'd be stuck sitting with the teacher the whole rest of the semester. I'm not kidding, this happened to me many times, many times. And my argument is I think the teachers just really wanted to hang out with me. Like they were like, they saw the fun that we were having and they're like, hey, I gotta bring that to my desk. But for whatever reason, throughout this whole experience, what I learned is that it's almost never a good thing when the boss or the teacher decides to make an example out of you. When there have been warnings and then threats and then severe threats and it's still not getting results and the boss decides enough, enough is enough, time to make an example out of someone, you do not want to be that person. Well, today, we're going to look at the life of a prophet from the Old Testament. A prophet who learned that lesson the hard way. A prophet who, unlike most other prophets, is not most well known for his words he spoke on behalf of God, though he spoke many. But instead, he's most well known for the example to his people that God made out of his life. And unlike most of our experiences with this tactic from a boss or a teacher, this prophet was actually not an example of discipline that was aimed at preventing continued bad behavior. His was an example of something far more tragic, but also far more beautiful. This was an example of a relentlessly loving God, despite the repeated infidelity and rejection of his own people. This is a story of heartbreak and fierce loyalty. This is the story of Hosea. So we're going to look at the life of Hosea pretty briefly this morning. And I know you've been in this series on kind of the big stories from the Old Testament, the ones maybe you grew up hearing in Sunday school. And while this is a big and well-known story, probably not one you heard a lot in Sunday school for reasons that will become obvious as we go. But Hosea's is a well-known story from the Old Testament, but also one that's often hard to grapple with. To place Hosea in a bit of context, um, he was obviously a prophet. He was a prophet sent to the northern kingdom. So this is during the era of the divided kingdom when God's people are still living in the land, the promised land, but they have split. They've divided to the northern kingdom of Israel, southern kingdom of Judah, and they're going their own way. They are not following after God. They're following after all kinds of foreign gods, and that is the greatest problem that God has in this era, is that his people are following after all these foreign gods. They're taking up the gods of the other people, of the, of the other nations around them. And so God keeps sending his prophets. And he sent multiple prophets to both the northern and the southern kingdoms throughout this time to draw to attention that they're, that they're going astray, to draw to attention where they are going astray, and to call them back to repentance and to call them back to him. And so over and over again, God's sending these prophets and it's, it's often 
read as mostly kind of prophecies of woe and destruction. Like if you continue in this, it's not going to go well for you. If you continue in this, I am going to bring you into exile quite horrifically at the hands of these other powers. But what you need to see as you continue through the prophets and as you read them carefully is that all throughout the consistent story that is laced and woven through all of these prophecies of woe and destruction is God is pleading with his people, calling them to repent and return to him. This is the heartbeat of the prophetic witness. Return to me because I love you. And so God's prevailing mode of operation through this time has been turn, repent, turn from your wicked ways, come back to me, or else it's not going to go well for you, and here's how that's going to look. And the problem is, as that's continued, things have not been getting much better. No, au contraire, the precedent is very much being set. And it's a precedent of places of worship to other foreign gods being literally built in the land, with some heartless sacrifices to Yahweh sprinkled in there. But Yahweh is very much one God among many. For the people, this is the precedent that's being set. And so God's mode of operation, operation shifts a little bit. It's time to make an example of someone. But in this case, it's not to make an example of someone for the sake of intimidation, but instead for the sake of explanation. And let's be honest, for a little bit of gravitas, which God loves. So it's a controversial example that God makes out of Hosea. We just have to put that on the table as we begin. It is a controversial example that God makes out of Hosea. As the people betray the God who brought them out of slavery, who fed them in the wilderness, who miraculously gave them a land in which to live, who gave them the promise of his presence to guide and lead them, who granted their desires, even though they were misguided, to have a human king. The list goes on and on. God has done so much miraculously for these people. And as they have betrayed him over and over again, and they cement instead a culture of infidelity, of disloyalty, of continued unfaithfulness, God tells Hosea, his prominent prophet of the people, to go find himself a prostitute to marry. He says, Hosea, you're going to, find, to marry a woman who by the very nature of her status here will be continually unfaithful to you. You're going to marry someone for whom infidelity is quite literally the job description on her CV. It's God saying here, it's time to give the people an example. And this is really important to hear, friends. It's time to give the people an example, but not of what's going to happen to them if they continue in their wicked ways, if they continue to be unfaithful, but instead of what happens to me every single time they are. I want to repeat that because it's really important to get that nuance. It's God saying it's time to give the people an example, but not of what's going to happen if they continue to be unfaithful, but instead of what happens to me every time they are. It's a heartbreaking story. The ESV translates it in verse 2 of Hosea chapter 1 as, quote, a wife of whoredom because the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. It truly is a heartbreaking story. And before we continue, I want to acknowledge that there's a lot about this story that grates against our sensibilities. And it should. It really should. Some weird stuff happened in the era of the prophets. If you read through them, you will see. 
And there's much about the idea of God commanding this kind of act that's really hard to fit into any kind of intellectual category for us. And I want to say that's okay. It's also proven very difficult to do so for biblical scholars throughout the ages. There are things about, about God that we may never completely perfectly understand or fit into a grid. And there are many different schools of thought that biblical scholars have come to on this particular command and act. Some that make the entire story out to be either hypothetical or allegorical, or like it was all a dream or a vision. Some, some say potentially it's that, or some have even surmised that maybe it was all a stage play. Some others, and I would argue probably much more compellingly, suggest that you know, maybe the woman was actually not a prostitute, but someone who had, quote, promiscuous tendencies, not entirely sure what that means, who would then later go on to commit adultery. I lay all these out for you just to, just to, to make evident that this is controversial and something that's been hard to grapple with for biblical scholars throughout the years. But all that to say, whatever we do with God's command to Hosea, whether you believe it to be allegory or history, the prophet obeys. The prophet obeys, and in the obedience of Hosea, and in this fascinating and heartbreaking story, we learn two important lessons that we're going to dive into just briefly this morning. And the first lesson that we're going to dive into this morning is, God is not a robot. God is not a robot. Profound, I know. You're probably wondering, why in the world did Craig invite a preacher who's going to come with ludicrous headings like this? God is not a robot. I will explain what I mean in a minute, but first let's read a bit of our text for this morning. So if you have your Bibles with you, I encourage you to open to Hosea chapter 1, or if you have your Bible app, open that up as well. And I'm going to read from verse 3. It says, So he went, this being Hosea, and took Gomer, the daughter of Deblame, some of these names I'm going to very much struggle to pronounce, I just want you to know, and she conceived and bore him a son. And the Lord said to him, call his name Jezreel, for in just a little while I will punish the house of Jehu for the blood of Jezreel, and I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. And on that day I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. Hmm. She conceived again and bore a daughter. And the Lord said to him, call her name No Mercy. Just a quick uh, insight into our lives. Uh, Kate and I, the, the other name we were bandying about when we named Wesley was actually No Mercy. Thought it had a really, really nice ring to it. Call her name No Mercy, for I will no more have mercy on the house of Israel to forgive them at all, but I will have mercy on the house of Judah, and I will save them by the Lord their God. I will not save them by bow or by sword or by war or by horses or by horsemen. When she had weaned no mercy, see, told you, just rolls right off the tongue. She conceived and bore a son. <sighs> Stop having kids, guys. And the Lord said, call his name not my people, for you are not my people, and I am not your God. Stop there for a moment. So I was talking about television earlier. My favorite show on television, by a mile, not even close, is The Office. And I actually asked Craig this week, you know, would the bridge be okay if I gave an analogy from the office? And he assured me that it's a regular occurrence. So I feel safe. I feel safe. I feel among friends. Uh, so The Office is my favorite show. And the, my favorite episode is an episode called The Dinner Party. 
And it's my favorite because I think the dinner party is by far the most awkward and cringiest episode that exists of this show, and that's kind of the whole point, so it's just, it's just wonderful. The premise of the dinner party is Michael Scott, who's this kind of naive, lovable boss figure, and he's with this woman named Jan at the time, and they decide to invite some of the office workers over to their house for a dinner party. So they show up for this very awkward dinner party, and there's this scene where Michael and Jan kind of do a, a tour of the house. So they start walking around the place, the apartment, to show them their apartment, as you might do at a nice dinner party. So they do the whole lower level, and they go upstairs, and they start showing the upper level. It's a three-bedroom apartment, pretty standard. And they go into the first bedroom, and, and it's got like you know, a, a desk. It's clearly some kind of office space. And they walk in, and Jan says, this is my office. Oh, okay, neat. This is Jan's office. It looks pretty typically like an office. And everyone goes, oh, great. They continue on, and the next bedroom they walk into, and for context, Jan is kind of running this like at-home candle business at this time. They walk into the second bedroom, and the bedroom is decked out like floor-to-ceiling in candles. There's candles everywhere. And they're standing there kind of like dumbfounded, like I thought we just came from her office. Jan says, this is my workspace. So, okay, so we just came from her office. This is her workspace. And so one of the dinner party guests decides to kind of like voice the confusion. Says, so you have an office and a workspace. To which Jan says, well, of, of course. I can't create in the same space I do business, obviously. And everyone's a little confused, but okay, on we go. Third, be third bedroom. Hopefully it all makes sense now. So they move into the third bedroom. It's the master bedroom. It's what you would typically kind of expect to see. Walk into the master bedroom, there's a big king-size bed. Okay, lovely. And at the foot of the bed, there's this little bench. This small little bench. You know, it's one of those benches you might have at the foot of your bed where you'd like sit down and put on your socks in the morning. You know, a small little bench, pretty narrow. One of the dinner party guests says, oh, that's a really, that's a really cute bench. And then, and then it all kind of shifts as Michael walks over to the bench and picks up the little pillow and really depressing little blanket that are there, and he says, oh yeah, I, I sleep here. And there's this really awkward pause, like they're waiting for further explanation, obviously. And, and, and so Michael breaks this awkward pause, and he says, yeah, yeah, Jan has space issues, so I curl up on this puppy. And there's obviously further, like, confusion, and it's silent and very awkward. So Michael decides to, like, show them that it works. So there's this incredible visual where he, he goes, okay, no, I'll show you. And he, like, crawls onto this little bench. And one of the, one of the dinner party guests goes, like, it's, ve it's very narrow and short. And so he's showing them, and he curls up on this bench, and he gets into, like, the fetal position just so that he can actually be on the bench. And there's this tiny little blanket he pulls over him, and it's this hilarious visual, very sad, this grown man sleeping curled up on this bench. And there's this awkward silence, and the whole scene ends as Jan breaks the tension. She points to Michael curled up on this bench, and she says, See? Fits perfectly. And the visual alone kills me every single time. You have this king-size bed, and then you've got Michael curled up on this little bench at the foot of the bed. And the entire joke of this scene is that Jan has so much room and so much space for all of the things that she wants, and then anything that makes her like remotely uncomfortable or inconvenienced, 
she shoves to the tiny bench at the foot of her bed. And so the reason why I describe this scene is, I mean, first and foremost, I'll take any excuse to talk about the office, so opportunity seized. Um, But the other reason is that I think that this is often what we do as modern evangelicals with the emotional life of God. I think we often do this with the emotional life of God. So I return to my point. God is not a robot. And yet sometimes I feel like we look at him that way as we read the scriptures. God is not a flat character. If you're familiar with, with literature and literary terminology, there's these kind of two spectrums. There's static and dynamic characters. So a static character is one who kind of stays the same throughout your whole story, um, whereas a dynamic character evolves and changes and goes on some kind of growth curve throughout the narrative. Then you have another spectrum that's a round versus a flat character. And a round character is one who's filled out. You see depths, highs and lows of this character. You see depth of emotion. Whereas a flat character, you kind of just see one particular element of this character throughout the story. God is a round character, and I think we often read the scriptures and we know, you know, God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's unchanged. So we go, okay, so God's a static character, and then maybe we think that he's then a flat character. But God is not a flat character. He's a round character. What we know of God from the scriptures is filled out. It is full of depth and feeling. He is full of a robust emotional life, which, like ours, has a spectrum And much like Jan in the office, I think most of us have a great amount of time and space for the pieces of the emotional life of God which are safe and, in particular, are beneficial to us. So we have two bedrooms and a king-size bed for the grace and love and compassion and mercy that God bestows on us, which we benefit from, that allow us to be forgiven and restored to relationship with him. And this is absolutely right and so important. We should give so much attention to these attributes. They are God's defining features. But the problem is that we end up confining all the rest of the robust emotional life of God that we maybe don't like to cozy up with quite so much to a tiny little bench at the foot of the bed. And as we do so, we look at it and we go, see, fits perfectly. We have space issues. See, we know that God is love. This is how he, he self-defines himself in Exodus 34, and the scripture will be up on the, on the screen. In Exodus 34, 6 and 7, God says of himself, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. But then he continues and he says, yet... He does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. And there's a ton to go into on that. There's so much to go into there about generational sin and discipline and the impact of our sin on those that we're raising up. But the point is, we only really ever sing about that first half. Am I right? We only really ever sing about that first half. And it is a beautiful first half. It's a beautiful first half. But if we only dwell on passages of scripture that emphasize the things that we like, that are cozy, we lose out on a lot of the depth of emotion that is also characteristic of the God that we worship. 
We lose out on the fact that Yahweh is a great God of wrath. He's a God of justice, which is so needed, am I right? He's a God of righteousness. And reading our text this morning from Hosea, sometimes we see that he's a God of deep anguish. Deep anguish. He is tender-hearted. And friends, his heart actually breaks over the waywardness of those that he loves. Much like yours or mine might break over the struggles of a loved one that they might be going through or over a strained relationship with our own children or whatever it might be, our hearts might break over that. Same goes for God. And this is why I think that the prophets and the psalmists need to be read with such regularity because I think they display better than maybe anywhere else in scripture aside from maybe a few distinct moments in Jesus' earthly ministry, the robustness of the emotional life of God. The robustness and fullness of the emotional life of God. You read the prophets and you go through the prophets and God is in physical pain, deep anguish, almost torture, like a spurned lover over the infidelity of his people whom he loves. And the problem is ultimately this, and the reason why I make this point. If we don't give space to the fullness of the emotional life of God, and we just confine to insignificance things like the justice, the righteousness, and the anguish of God, then we create a generation that understands no consequences for sin. If we push those attributes of God to the bench at the foot of our bed, then we simply don't have to grapple with the gravity of our actions toward him. And we end up a generation that has never experienced true, real anguish over our own sin and a need for repentance before God. Friends, we do not worship a stoic God. We do not worship a robot. We worship a God with a deep and robust emotional life, one who grieves over the sin that we often don't even consider. And it makes sense because he created us in his image with the very same capacities. And so in those verses about the children of Hosea that I read, you see the bleeding heart of God pouring out. In his distress, his pain pours out over the betrayal of his people and he names Hosea's kids just these horrible names to represent his anguish. But what's so important, like I said earlier about what's consistent throughout the prophets, is that even in those moments of anguish and justice, mercy is never far off with our God. Look at verse 10, which immediately follows what we were just reading. It says, Yet the number of the children of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, remember that name of one of the kids? It shall be said to them, children of the living God. And the children of Judah and the children of Israel shall be gathered together and they shall appoint for themselves one head and they shall go up from the land for great shall be the day of Jezreel. There's another one of the names. And look at verse one of chapter two. Say to your brothers, you are my people. And to your sisters, you have received mercy. Each of those three names God gave the kids redeemed and the mercy of God shone through in this prophecy from Hosea in these verses. 
Mercy is never far off from God. Even in the thick of anguish and wrath, God speaks the reality of hope and restoration over his people. A a theological excerpt I was reading on a passage that actually comes later in Hosea beautifully summed this up. It said, quote, "What, what is striking about this passage is the personal and even emotional intensity with which God turns away from retribution toward compassion. It is not a coldly calculating decision. It pours out of his deepest being. Friends, God is not a robot. And the more we give space for that, the more truly and deeply we will come to know his very heart for us. So that's our first point. And second one, and we'll finish with this. Redemption is not just a nice idea. Redemption is not just a nice idea. It is instead a painstaking reality. Just ask Hosea. Chapter 2, which separates these two moments with some prophecy that God gives through Hosea. There's some beautiful words in Hosea 2 that I really wish we had time to dig into this morning. But we're going to jump for the sake of time to to chapter 3 where the narrative piece of this story picks back up again. And chapter three is where the real heartbreaking and Hollywood moment of our story comes home. And before we read chapter three, there's this unstated, assumed context for this chapter. And that is that Hosea's wife, Gomer, has been unfaithful to him, and she's now with another man. And as is so often the case, the biblical text just cuts right to the chase. But you can imagine, in our era of television and cinema, you can imagine the tragic Hollywood scene that would be playing out here to take 45 minutes with, like, sad music playing in the background as it rains heavily, you know. You can picture it. It's a tragic scene. Hosea chapter 3. And the Lord said to me, Go again, love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the children of Israel. Though they turned to other gods and loved cakes of raisins, which was part of a worship to another foreign god. So I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a lethek of barley. And I said to her, you must dwell as mine for many days. You shall not play the whore or belong to another man, so will I also be to you. So after Hosea has taken this promiscuous woman to be his wife... They have had and reared multiple children together. We find Gomer having abandoned Hosea for a man who is not her husband. Think of the grief and anguish that must accompany this moment for Hosea. And I know that for far, far too many people, this is a relatable moment, sadly. And to complete the example that God was making with Hosea, he has Hosea not only welcome Gomer back. No, no, it's actually bigger than that. He has, he has Hosea not only welcome her back with open arms. No, he has Hosea go get her. He has Hosea go and get his wife. This prophet of God who's already being lamented by the people for bringing all these prophecies of woe and destruction is now enduring the deep shame and embarrassment of going to retrieve his own wife. Now this could either have been from the temple, if she was engaging in temple prostitution, or simply from another man's property. Either way, Hosea physically goes to the place of shame to bring her back. 
He physically goes to the place of shame to bring her back. And more than that, he has to pay a mighty ransom to buy back she who had already been his in the first place. What a heartbreaking scene. You put yourself in Hosea's shoes and it becomes a tragedy that could compete with Shakespeare. I mean, who does this? Out of the place of deep pain and anguish over the infidelity and betrayal of his bride, Hosea goes to the place of shame and buys back she who had been his in the first place. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? And I want to pause and have us contemplate and consider what ultimate reality that even Hosea would not yet have known about does this sound like to you. Put yourself in the shoes of Hosea for a moment and allow yourself to consider the depths of the love and sacrifice that God has and has made for you. Because friends, this is the gospel This story, this this picture of Hosea, this chapter 3 of Hosea, this is the gospel. This is the work of Jesus for you and for me. This is the story of a God who, in his pain and anguish over the rejection of those he created and loved, did not just wait with open arms for us to figure it all out and find our way back to him. He didn't just wait with open arms for us to return to him. He came, he took it upon himself to come himself to the place of deepest shame, a cursed tree, a grotesque death on a cross at the hands of the very people he loved and came to retrieve, ultimately doing this to buy back those who had already been his in the first place but had rejected him for the sake of all else. And he bought us back, not for nothing, but at the steepest of prices, the price of himself, of his own life. This is the story of a God who woos and relentlessly pursues us. This is the story of true repentance and redemption, redeeming love. I think we so often throw around the word redemption. Redemption, it's like a nice word that we throw around, you know, with some of the Christian buzzwords that we'll often use. You know, we'll say things like, you know, we're forgiven, chosen, loved, redeemed, etc., etc. And we just kind of throw it in with this list of other, you know, Christian buzzwords. And it just becomes another word for us to kind of mean the same thing, you know, a Christian gospel word that doesn't have a lot of meaning in isolation. But redemption is not just a nice word or a nice idea. Redemption is a painstaking reality. Redemption is Hosea going to find his bride in the place of deep shame and buying her back at great, great cost to himself. Redeeming her, delivering her, buying her back. Restoring her. Friends, this is the great, great love of our God for his people. And in as much as Hosea's example to the people of God in his day was ultimately fruitless, and the people of Israel didn't really understand all that was going on here as we do, and they went on their unfaithful ways and ultimately were brought into exile in a foreign land, it was fruitless and they didn't learn. My appeal to you this afternoon, Bridge Church, is to not allow Hosea's example to be ultimately fruitless in your life. 
Do not allow Hosea's example to be ultimately fruitless in your life. There is a God who created us, who is not a robot. He desires at the deepest places of his being that we would all know him, that we would draw near to him and abide in him in all seasons, the highs and the lows, all days, all moments of our lives, that we would abide in him because he cares for us. A God whose heart breaks over our sin and waywardness and unfaithfulness. A God who is in anguish over all of the other things that we pursue. Whose heart is in anguish over all of the other things, the accolades, the praise, the money, the comforts, the prestige, the gods we pursue in worship. His heart breaks over these things. We have a God who, despite our sin and infidelity and pursuing after all these other gods, came to get us came after us, came after you, came to the place of shame and died a shameful, humiliating, and painful death so that with his blood, his own blood, he might buy you back, redeem you, pay the price that your sin demanded. He's done it all. He's done all the work. He has bridged that gap. And all he wants, friends, is your heart. All he wants is your heart, but not just part of it, not just part of it, not to be one among a whole litany of other gods that you worship, but to be the one thing you seek after, the one thing you seek after. And so I ask you to close, will you heed the example today? Will you heed the example? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as painful as it is to read and contemplate, Lord, we thank you and praise you for the example of Hosea. Thank you for this story from the Old Testament that reminds us, God, and gives us a picture, an image in the most heartbreaking of ways of just how beautiful and overwhelming and all-consuming your love for us is. God, that you would overcome any and every obstacle to come after us and make right relationship between us possible. And God, my prayer is that for each person in this room, each person watching on the live stream, Lord, everyone who calls Bridge Church home or who's visiting for the first time, anyone hearing this this morning, Lord, that this would be an example and a lesson that would not fall on deaf ears, that it would not come up ultimately fruitless that it would be an example we learn from. And Lord, that there's anybody watching or listening to this, Lord, that has not surrendered their life to you, given their life to you, and just received your love, received your Holy Spirit. God, I pray that today would be the day. And God, for those of us who have, who've been following you for some time, God, I just pray that you would rend our hearts, Holy Spirit. Bring us to a place of surrender. God, that we would be seeking after you with all we are and all we have, that you would be the one thing we seek after. And God, that you would do incredible and mighty things in and through this church going forward, a church that is on its knees, surrendered to you, Jesus, because of your great, great love for us. We love you, Jesus, and we pray this in your name. Amen.